0: Welcome to the MSK Minute podcast by Basics of Ortho, where the aim is to boost your musculoskeletal knowledge and improve your confidence in evaluating and caring for musculoskeletal conditions. Join me for casual discussions on musculoskeletal anatomy and biomechanics, various conditions and other topics related to or being a physician assistant in orthopedics. We will also pick the brains of several interesting guests from time to time. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host and longtime PA in orthopedics, Jason Coggins.
1: Hello, and welcome back, orthopedic enthusiasts. Last time we were together, we talked about a mechanism of injury that is really common across lots of different specialties and clinics, and that was the inversion ankle injury. Well, today we're going to continue with that theme of mechanism of injuries, and we're going to discuss another very common one that is seen in lots of different uh, types of practices, and that is a foosh injury. You may say, what is foosh? Well, it's not the new Nike slogan. It's an acronym that stands for fall on an outstretched hand. How many times do you see patients, young and old, that come in for a complaint of upper extremity pain? That's related to the fact that they fell, they reached out with their arm, uh, fall, boom, and now they have pain. So we're going to talk about three specific injuries today that are commonly seen with that foosh or fall on an outstretched hand mechanism. The first of those is distal radius fractures. The second is going to be another infamous fracture in the upper extremity. That's a scaphoid fracture. And then finally, we're going to move uh, approximately from the wrist and hand to the radial head and neck fractures. So let's go ahead and get started with the most common, at least that I see in my clinic, and that is distal radius fractures. So again, we've got this patient, like I said, could be young or old. They've had a fall. They've fallen outstretched hand. They come in, and they have a complaint mainly of wrist pain. So... From a clinical evaluation standpoint, what is this patient going to look like? What does a distal radius fracture look like on exam? Well, of course, that depends on the severity. It can depend on the patient's age, uh, their body habitus, and so forth. But in general, uh, presentation of a distal radius fracture, uh, you're going to see some swelling, possibly even deformity if it's displaced. Uh, Now, where would this be? Uh, Depends where uh, again on body habitus, but you'll see it at the wrist. Uh, you may see more swelling along the radial side of the wrist as opposed to the ulnar side. Uh, you may see some ecchymosis depending on the acuity of it. But uh, the biggest thing is your palpation exam. So, where are they tender? Are they palpate, or do they have palpable tenderness on the distal radius, uh, the distal ulna, and if it's on the distal radius, is it uh, just in one particular location? Is it just on the dorsal aspect, or do they do they have circumferential tenderness, you know, dorsal and volar aspects? Is it just tender over the radial styloid? So, your palpation exam can give you quite a bit of uh, information. Um, As far as motion goes, generally patients will have some decreased motion due to uh, pain inhibition. Um, So that's the biggest thing that you look for uh, on clinical exam for distal radius fracture. Now, of course, you get x-rays, and a lot of times it is pretty clear-cut on the x-ray if they have a distal radius fracture. Sometimes it is not. When are the are, are there common times that it's difficult to see a distal radius fracture? In my experience, yes, uh, it can be difficult in two uh, age categories. The first being kids that are skeletally immature that have a Salter-Harris type 1 distal radius fracture. Their growth plate is wide open. They've had a fallen and outstretched hand. Uh, they're tender over the distal radius. But you get that x-ray and you don't really see anything. Well, in that case, just like I've recommended in previous uh, podcasts uh, where I've mentioned Salter-Harris injuries in pediatric uh, patients, uh, if the mechanism's there, if the physical exam is there, but the x-rays don't necessarily match, you treat it like it is a fracture until it proves itself otherwise. And then the other category that can sometimes be uh, very difficult to tell is, uh, an older patient, particularly, um, thin female that has, uh, osteopenic or osteoporotic bone. Uh, sometimes you, you can't see that clear fra- fracture line, but you can kind of look for clues. Um, you can look uh, for distal radius height, but again, um, if the mechanism's there, if the physical exam is there, then again, you treat it like it is until it proves itself as uh, otherwise. So, what do you do initially? Um, initially splint. Now, how do you splint? Uh, it depends, but in most cases, initial splinting is with a uh, sugar tong or co splint, and that prevents uh, wrist extension and flexion, as well as forearm pronation supination, which could uh, affect uh, the alignment of a distal radius fracture. But uh, once you go into more definitive treatment, uh, there have been good studies that show that short arm casting uh, that is well molded uh, can be just as good as long arm cla- casting. Um, so when do you not cast? When do you think about... Uh, Surgeries, well, I'm not going to delve too much into that because I want to focus more on initial treatment of these, but you really want to consider getting this patient to a surgeon to discuss surgical options uh, in a few cases. One being uh, if there's any shortening of the fracture, a uh, radial head, particularly if it's uh, greater than five millimeters of shortening. Um... You want to look at uh, any intraarticular involvement, and if there is intraarticular involvement, you want to make sure there is less than uh, two millimeters of a step off. You want to look at the volar tilt. Now, this is what you look for on the lateral x ray, and the volar tilt is uh, if you drew a vertical line from uh, the dorsal lip of the distal radius to the volar lip. And you measured the angle that it's leaning towards the hand. Uh, Ideally, that's around 10 to 11 degrees. So if there's dorsal angulation, meaning that the dorsal aspect of that distal radius is starting to lean back towards the forearm, if it leans back more than 5 degrees, then that's an indication for possible surgical intervention. Um, you also want to look at radial inclination. That's seen on the AP x-ray, and that's if you drew a line uh, from the tip of the radial styloid to the lip of the uh, ulnar-sided radius at the joint. That angle normally is 23 degrees roughly. If there's a change in that uh, by greater than five degrees, uh, then that can also be an indication for surgical intervention. So if you see any of those changes, or if you're just unsure, uh, splint it, get it to an orthopedic clinic um, to have them discuss whether or not surgical intervention is the, the best means of definitive treatment. So that's the distal radius uh, fracture fuse injuries. Next, we're going to move on to the scaphoid fracture. Now, scaphoid fractures are historically infamous for a couple of reasons. One, they can uh, be very sneaky in that they don't show up initially on x-ray. Uh, and two, they are infamous uh, for uh, potential uh, risk of nonunion. So you want to be very, very careful. So if you have a patient that has... The Fouche mechanism, falling an outstretched hand. Um, what are the clinical uh, cues or pearls uh, that that can indicate a possible scaphoid injury? Well, if you don't remember it from uh, PA school or if you're in PA school, uh, the anatomic snuff box. So what is the anatomic snuff box? Basically, if you palpate the distal uh, radius at the radial styloid, you can go just a little bit more distal where it steps off towards the thumb, uh, there's an indentation there that's in between uh, the EP, EPL and APB tendons, um, and, and that's the anatomic snuff box. So if there's any tenderness in there and there's a fall in an outstretched hand, again, you treat it like it is a scaphoid fracture until that you know that it's not. And um, patients with Scaphoid fractures, isolated scaphoid fractures, you may see some swelling in that area, you may not. In comparison to distal radius fractures, they may have uh, a little bit more motion, but when they radial deviate, uh, they can have more significant discomfort. So uh, they may have some tenderness along the dorsal aspect, uh, distal to the distal radius. Um, That would also coincide as being the dorsal aspect of that scaphoid. So they had a fallen outstretched hand. There's tenderness in the anatomic snuff box. Their motion isn't severely limited. They don't have a lot of swelling. They do have pain with radial deviation. You get x-rays. You want to get the three typical x-rays, AP, lateral, and oblique, but you also want to get a scaphoid or navicular view, uh, which really really brings into picture uh, the full length of that scaphoid. And you may or may not see a fracture. Uh, I believe i read the statistic somewhere that uh, 27% of the time uh, they don't show up initially. But uh, again, that, that's not for certain. But I want to say I've read that at some point in time. But uh, again, if you don't see a fracture, don't think immediately that they don't have one. Uh, if the physical exam is there, a mechanism is there, you want to treat them. And you want to treat them initially with um splinting that includes the thumb so a thumb spike a splint and then you want to reevaluate that in somewhere between 2 and 3 weeks and if there's still tenderness in the snuffbox then repeat x-rays are definitely indicated and a lot of times uh, that initial occult fracture will show up uh, later on as you'll start to see changes that go along with um bony absorption at the fracture site and potentially early healing changes. Uh, If they're tender and you still don't see a fracture on x-ray, you still have to splint it and you have to find out for sure. And that can be done with either bone scan, MRI, or CT scan with uh, thin uh, scaphoid cuts. Uh, As far as definitive treatment goes, any displacement whatsoever needs to see a hand surgeon to talk about uh, surgery. If it's completely non-displaced, it is completely reasonable to treat these conservatively with some spike of casting, uh, but it may take uh, eight weeks sometimes or even more uh, for complete fracture healing. Now, there have been has been some literature that states that uh, if you're looking at cost effectiveness, due to the length of time that you have to treat conservatively in some cases, uh, it can cost just as much as if you initially had surgical fixation. So, uh, that's a discussion for the orthopedic surgeon uh, to have with the patient. But for someone ini- initially treating these, splinting and getting them to orthopedic follow-up uh, is appropriate. And then our final Fouche injury that we'll talk about today is radial head and neck fractures. So the radial head and neck is clo- is at the elbow, and it's palpation-wise... If you find your lateral epicondyle and go just distal to that and a little bit towards the the mass of extensor muscle, so your radial head is deep in there. And if you pronate and supinate your forearm, you may feel uh, the bony prominence of that radial head coming up underneath of your uh, finger. But essentially, uh, another fracture that you can have from a Fouche injury is a radial head and neck fracture. So what does this look like clinically? So again, the patient comes in with the mechanism. They usually describe either elbow or kind of proximal forearm pain, and uh, they'll complain about uh, increased pain with motion, particularly extending and supination, pronation type motion. From a physical exam standpoint, You may or may not be able to appreciate any significant swelling. But they will, uh, in most cases, certainly have tenderness to palpation over that radial head. And then checking their range of motion, which is really important. Um, They usually will have more pain and difficulty with achieving uh, full extension as well as full supination. Uh, Because that's what puts the most stress and strain on that uh, radial head and neck. Now, when you're checking the range of motion, ideally, even though it's painful, you want to make sure that they have uh, near full extension and supination. Because one of the indications for surgical intervention is uh, they have a mechanical block. So uh, there's something going on because of that fracture that is physically blocking the joint from being able to fully extend. Now, right after an injury, that can be related to just the hematoma in the joint. Uh, So some advocate for aspirating that hematoma and injecting a little bit of uh, anesthetic into the joint to make sure that the patient can achieve that full extension and supination. Um, Others say just you know, splint it, ice it, give it seven to 10 days to kind of, uh, settle that acute injury inflammation down and then reassess it. So either way, you want to make sure that they don't have a mechanical block. Um, from an x-ray perspective, these can sometimes be difficult to see as well, especially if it's, uh, just a mildly impacted neck fracture. Um, but one thing that you always want to look for, whether we're talking about a radial head or neck fracture or any other type of uh, potential intra-articular injury to the elbow, is you want to look for that uh, posterior fat pad sign and that anterior sail sign. That lets you know that there's bleeding in the joint, and there's a good chance there is an intra-articular fracture that has bled into the joint. Um, so, again, sometimes you can't see these, but if the mechanism of there and uh, the physical exam all fits, then you treat it like it is a fracture until, again, it proves itself to not be. And initial treatment for uh, radial head and neck fractures, as long as they're non-displaced or within the conservative treatment uh, criteria, then a posterior splint or sling for you know one to two weeks at most, uh, but you don't want to leave these immobilized too long because they'll get really, really stiff. So after a week or two to just let that acute injury settle down, then initiate some general range of motion. Now, are there indications for surgical management? Yes, and it all depends on uh, the type of fracture. So in radial uh, head slash neck fractures uh, go under a uh, you know, there's a couple of different types, but one is a Mason classification, and that goes type one through four. Uh, so type one is just non or minimally displaced. A type two is uh, greater than two millimeters of displacement of the radiohead, um, or it's angulated, or if there's a mechanical block to forearm rotation. And then a type 3 is where there's comminution and displacement and a mechanical block. And then type 4 is where the uh, radial head fracture is associated with uh, an elbow dislocation. So there's other concomitant injuries that are ligamentous and make it uh, unstable. So those are our three Fouche injuries that I wanted to... uh, share with you today. Um there's certainly other injuries, but these three are the most common that I've seen throughout my career and that I want to make sure that you don't miss. Um, so I hope that you have found benefit from this today, and I trust that you have. I have thoroughly enjoyed putting this information together for you and I look forward to the next time that we meet again.
0: Thank you again for joining me on today's podcast. I trust that you have found it valuable to your learning and practice and maybe even a bit entertaining. Please join me for the next episode of the MSK Minute by Basics of Ortho. If you have found this podcast useful, I would be exceedingly grateful if you'd hit that subscribe button and leave a comment. Also, please consider visiting and subscribing to the website, basicsofortho.com, to get the latest updates and take advantage of all the great ortho-themed video content, blog articles, and more. If you'd like to contact me directly, you can do so through the website or jason at basicsofortho.com. Stay safe and see you next time.